Hey, it's Madison, the Black Eagle, and here's a highlight from today's show. Now, this guy who's been fired from his law firm with a Napoleon complex is now currently attacking me in my state, saying that I am incapable of holding office because of the 14th Amendment, something that hasn't been used since the Civil War and the Reconstruction era. Um, and so now they've filed with the 14th Amendment with the North Carolina Board of Elections, and it's, gone, it's probably going to go to the North Carolina Supreme Court, which is a very liberal haven for the Democrats, to try and keep me off the ballot. And now this is only going to lead to one place. When you want to try and take the right of the people away to be able to vote for their elected <laughs> official, I mean, this is going down a very dangerous path. But uh, we filed a counterpunch lawsuit uh, in federal court with a good Trump-appointed judge. So I genuinely believe we'll be able to win this. We'll be able to, to uh, destroy this narrative and hopefully set a legal precedent that they can't start using this against everyone else. Interesting. Ron Fine is the legal director of the, for free speech for people. Um, you know, these guys, they always result to personal insults. I can't tell you, uh, Ron, well, I, I can tell you, we're, you know, we get them all the time. There's never a legal argument or a constitutional argument. It's just an insult. First of all, thank you for coming on the um, the Madison show. Um, let's start at the beginning. Uh, uh, for people that may not know why you took this this action, uh, because Representative um, Cawthorn, uh, Madison Cawthorn. Um, you know, he says, oh, you've reached way back to um, Civil War Amendment and that, that type of thing. Um, how does it apply to today? Thanks for that question, Joe. The Constitution, of course, many parts of it were written long ago, uh, but they still apply. So to give some background, uh, after the Civil War, uh, the United States passed three new constitutional amendments right after the Civil War. One was the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. The other is the 14th Amendment, which is what we're talking about today. And the other is the 15th Amendment, which said that um, uh, the right to vote cannot be denied on account of race. And, of course, that was not always honored um, for for well over yeah. a century, as we know, and, and continues to be sometimes in danger today. But the, uh, the, the text of the Constitution is good at any rate. And the 14th Amendment, the most famous part of it, uh, says that uh, everyone who is born uh, or naturalized in, in the U.S. is a is a citizen, so that gave you know full citizenship rights uh, for the first time to to black people, uh, overturning the Dred Scott Supreme Court decision. Uh, it says that everyone is entitled to equal protection of the laws, and a provision that was very very important to the Congress that that uh, wrote the Fourteenth Amendment, but which has not been used for a while. Uh, to be fair. Um, was uh, put in place to prevent the Confederates from retaking power. And what it says is that no one who took an oath to support the Constitution and then broke that oath and aided an insurrection or rebellion against the United States can ever hold public office again because they pose too much of a danger to the entire country. And that was used for years to keep the uh, former Confederate leadership 
out of positions of power. And while that provision of the Constitution has not been used in a, quite a long time, it remains uh, alive and, and viable today. And when January 6, 2021 happened, we saw an insurrection against the United States, and that part of the 14th Amendment is as important now as it was back then. How does it apply to Congressman Cawthorn? So the definition of having engaged in insurrection, which are the, the words of the 14th Amendment, isn't just limited to the people who stormed the Capitol, um, you know, or beating up the police. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the history, Congress in 1860s was actually much more concerned about the leadership than they were about the Confederate foot soldiers. And what the uh, court said, because there were court decisions back in the 1860s uh, using it, is they said, is anyone who voluntarily helped the insurrection in any way, that's what it means. So when we look at Madison Cawthorn, it's not just that he gave a speech telling his followers to threaten their congressman. It's not just that he spoke at the demonstration on the morning of January 6th that led right into the march on the Capitol and then the, the storming of the, the building with the, the violent assault there, but also the people who planned some of those events on January 6th have said that Cawthorn and his team helped plan some of those events. What, now, what, now, it, what proof uh, is there for that accusation that you just shared with us? Well, the, the, the people themselves involved in the, the, uh, the planning uh, said so, um, and uh, it, it was reported uh, a couple of months ago um, in the news. And what's interesting about the way the, the North Carolina law works is that um, candidates are ultimately responsible for proving that they are qualified for office. So uh, what the state could have done was said, you know, everybody needs to show up uh, when they file for candidacy paperwork. They need to prove all their qualifications. But instead what they said is it's ultimately the candidate's job to prove they're qualified, but uh, it, they won't be called to answer for it until a challenge is filed. And the, the law says that once we filed the challenge, the burden rests on Cawthorn to prove that he is qualified mm -hmm. for office. So uh, it's actually up to him at this point to show that he is, in fact, qualified despite uh, the 14th Amendment. Now, his, uh, his attorney, attorney, I think it's Bob B.O.P.P. Yeah. Jr., I saw earlier this morning his argument in defense of uh, Madison Cawthorn is the First Amendment. Well, I think it's important to emphasize that we're not just talking about um, speeches. Uh, like I said at the outset, it's not only what he said in those speeches. It's also that he seems to have been involved in helping to plan some of mm -hmm. these events. And the First Amendment does not protect uh, helping yeah. to, you know, plan uh, this type of thing. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, you can be an insurrectionist and then try to argue First Amendment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. The, yeah, that's stretching it. Yeah. Interesting. This isn't, and, 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 and now, is, is this something, I'm, 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 I'm asking this for a reason. The, the congressional, the January 6th congressional uh, hearings that are taking place, um, if they come up with, um, let's say, evidence that he, in fact, 
was part of the planning because they've, they've talked to hundreds of people. And maybe in, somewhere in their, in their investigation, even though they're not a, a criminal body, they're not a, they don't prosecute, um, if they came up with someone who said, you know, uh, Madison Cawthorn was on a Zoom or was in a meeting, here's what he said, they, they could turn that over, could they not, to the Justice Department? Uh, they, they certainly could. And, um, you know, we're not privy to the inner workings of the January 6th committee. I, I know they've done some some good work so far. Um, they are, you know, running against the clock. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons that we did not sit around and wait for them to complete their investigation is that the deadlines for filing challenges to the candidacy of candidates like like Madison Cawthorn come up this this year this this spring so um, you know we, we can't afford to sit around and wait for the January 6th committee which which may be taking unfortunately months and months longer yeah yeah now who makes the decision whether or not he is or is not a candidate can or cannot be a candidate and then let me let me couple this and piggyback could he run as an independent? So the way this works in, uh, is different in every state, the process for, for challenging a candidate. But in North Carolina, what they do is they appoint a panel um, of, uh, of people from uh, elections boards from the counties that are uh, in the, the candidate's district. So in Cawthorn's case, that would be Western North Carolina. And the panel conducts a hearing. It's like a miniature trial. Um, with, you know, evidence, and, and, and he is able to come and present his case. He can call witnesses. He can present whatever evidence he wants. Um, and then the panel makes a decision, and then uh, anyone who is unhappy with that decision can appeal it to the State Board of Elections, which is, uh, you know, sitting in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and then uh, whoever is unhappy with that could appeal it to the North Carolina court system. Um, so it could go through the North Carolina, say, Supreme Court, and then, in theory, up to the United States Supreme Court. Mm. And in terms of your second question about whether he could run as an independent, uh, if, if the finding is that he is constitutionally disqualified from office, then, then he can't appear on the ballot, period. Wow. I, 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 have, I will ask you, when you decided to do this, and, and we're, we're, we're uh, talking to... Um, uh, 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 you know, this is interesting. Uh, we're talking to, and it's, it's, it's fine, right, Ron Fine? Yes. Yeah. We're talking to Ron Fine of Free Speech for People. Uh, he's the legal director for Free Speech for People. Um, the, the, it was, when you considered, when your organization considered doing this, uh, I mean, he makes it sound like it's personal. I assume your your organization uh, decided that this is something that you had to do. D- did you? Is this a long shot? I mean, I, I'm asking the question. Maybe it sounds like I'm playing the devil's advocate. But there are people who are just saying, "Oh, this is a long shot." And Lord, given if it goes to the Supreme Court, you know, with the ma- conservative makeup of the Supreme Court, they would probably overturn any any ruling. I'm, I'm just your, your thought process. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. So, I mean, 
to be fair, no one has filed this type of challenge since the Reconstruction era. So in that sense, uh, no one can say that they have experience with this or, or can predict the outcome uh, at any level of this process, uh, to, to be sure. And um, that certainly you know, makes it novel. Uh, but on the other hand, if you look at the text and history of the 14th Amendment and the, you know, the legal structure in North Carolina and, and the facts related to Cawthorn, we have a very strong case. So while I can't predict the outcome at any uh, specific level of whether it's the panel or the State Board of Elections or North Carolina courts or the U.S. Supreme Court, the uh, case that we have put together is strong, and we think that if the people involved in the decision-making do their jobs in good faith, and, and this, is, this is not personal, this is application of a long-standing constitutional principle, then they will in fact find that Cawthorn is disqualified from office. Now, the North Carolina Election Board, as you say, they do have the ability to bar him from running. Now, this is not something I imagine is going to, you know, rush through uh, this year. He, he's going to, he, he is a candidate, and if he's not, he's going to declare if he hasn't already. Um, what happens if, if, this, if this decision isn't made? And in, in time for the election, and he gets reelected. We we certainly hope that this process can move quickly, and and it's unfortunate that Cawthorn actually filed a lawsuit in federal court to block the state court, uh, the state proceeding from going forward, um, because uh, he just doesn't want to undergo the the standard North Carolina candidate challenge proceedings. Uh, however. Um, we, we think that the process can move quickly. There are actually statutory deadlines for the panel oh, to make its okay. decision in North Carolina. Okay. Uh, there right. may be court appeals, um, but we think it, it is important, and, and hopefully it will happen that this can be decided by the courts well in time for the election. Okay, okay. so in, in other words, it's not something that technically he could drag out. He can he can try, but we'll we'll be arguing against it at every step. All right, Ron Fine, thank you for coming on. It, this is in, this is interesting. You know, it's really it can be very complicated to non lawyers, particularly non constitutional lawyers. But you really kind of laid it uh, laid it out for us. So I I thank you, and and we'll stay in touch now that we've reached out to you. I, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. It's uh, been a pleasure to join you. Thomas J. Vilsack is uh, with us, and uh, he actually uh, also served in that position under the Obama administration, and we're going to talk with him about a new equity commission related to the USDA. Uh, good morning, Secretary. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Um, um, thank you for coming on. Um, the equity commission as it relates to the uh, Department of Agriculture. First of all, what is its mission? Well, uh, its mission is to identify barriers that may exist in our current operations that deny people access, equitable access, to our programs and services. Uh, we expect them to make recommendations uh, to, uh, of action that could remove those barriers 
as well as how we might be able to expand assistance to historically underserved populations. And I think we'll gain from uh, this commission as well an understanding of how we can ensure that the USDA is a, has a culture that prioritizes diversity, equity, inclusion, and make sure that we provide access and accountability. Uh, that's now, the second, goal. Uh, the, mm-hmm. That's the goal. Who's on the commission? Right. Well, there are 15 uh, prominent individuals uh, who have been selected from a variety of different uh, occupations, professions, and experience. We've got folks who represent community building organizations. So we have folks who represent the law, history, social policy, and so forth. I'll give you a couple of names uh, that I think are significant. Shirley Sherrard uh, is on it uh, from the Southwest Georgia Project for Community Oh, Education. yeah, I remember her. Said, yes, yeah. She, she's had firsthand experience uh, right. in terms of dealing with the USDA in a, in a not particularly pleasant way. Uh, Dr. Hazel Reed, who is the executive director of the National Black Growers Association, uh, Derek Johnson, uh, uh, who is the president of the NAACP, Eartha Cousins, a former ambassador during the Obama administration. Uh, this is the caliber of people uh, that mm-hmm. have been asked to serve on this commission. We have a former uh, U.S. Commissioner on Civil Rights, uh, Yvonne DeLee. Uh, we've got folks who are uh, also uh, well-known in the Native American uh, uh, population community. So, uh, the goal here is to get a cross-section of folks who would take a very serious and deep look uh, at, at USDA's activities, starting with um, uh, we appointed a, a subcommittee on agriculture. So we're going to first start and look at ways in which we at USDA interact or not with uh, historically underserved populations of producers uh, and find out how we can do a better job of providing equitable What has program. been... And, and and one of the reasons I, I always appreciate you coming on, because you're very honest and very straightforward. Um, what has been some of the problems that brought about the need for this uh, equity commission? Well, uh, when I was secretary before, uh, the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Justice uh, basically provided over $2 billion dollars of compensation to people who had been discriminated against by the department uh, over the course of time. Now, these were Native American farmers, Hispanic farmers, black farmers, women farmers, uh, folks who just didn't get a fair shake at USDA uh, for a variety of reasons. They may have gotten a loan that was denied because of their color. They may have had an interest rate that was higher. They may have had a loan that was approved but late in the growing season, so they didn't get a chance to have the kind of crop that maybe their white neighbor down the road uh, was able to, uh, to secure. So, it, it created over time a cumulative uh, effect and impact uh, on historically underserved producers, putting them at, at, a, at somewhat of a disadvantage uh, over time. And so the, the goal here is to figure out what, what can we do, um, not just by focusing on the past and compensating people for past actions, but what can we do now and in the future to make sure that the programs at USDA, the loan programs, the assistance programs, the conservation programs, that will help people uh, grow and and prosper are, in fact, accessible uh, to these historically underserved populations. What do we have to do to our system? What do we have to do to our structure? What do we have to do to our our personnel in terms of training uh, and accountability? It's a a very comprehensive look at all aspects of USDA. You know, and you answered the other question I was going to have because you, you, um, you have put in place, and we've talked about this, policy changes that have that on this on in writing 
uh, were equitable or appeared to be equitable. But then when it got down to the local level, uh, when we've had conversations with uh, people like uh, 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 John Boyd uh, Jr. and others, it, 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 the problem was personnel and what they they didn't follow what the guidelines or the rules and and so i guess is there any repercussion if if you find out that this may be the case um are there are there repercussions when people don't do what the policies instruct them to do well, there certainly should be, and there will be, uh, as long as I'm secretary, uh, we made it very clear to all of our employees that we weren't going to tolerate discrimination in any form. Uh, and if there is an incident of discrimination, then obviously there will be a disciplinary action taken. Uh, in the meantime, what we're trying to do is also create a more diverse workforce. Uh, and, you know, the reality is if you look at our numbers today at USDA, you'll see that our, uh, our <coughs> uh, the people that are on our team, the USDA, the African-Americans on our team, represent roughly uh, the same percentage as in the civilian workforce. So you think, well, okay, uh, that's a representative sampling. That's a good percentage. That, that, that's, that's consistent with what's happening out there in, in, uh, in, in the you know, other, other businesses and occupations. But the problem is it's consolidated. Uh, so we have a significantly high population of African-Americans working at our central office here in Washington, D.C. But we don't have that same kind of uh, effort uh, out in the countryside. So it's going to be important for us as we hire additional people, and we're doing this now, to create a, a, a cast a wider net for, for uh, qualified candidates so that we put people uh, in communities across the country, not just in uh, concentrated areas. So that's And if individuals, uh, Secretary Bill saying, if individuals listening say, oh, hey, I'd like to uh, maybe uh, apply for those positions. Uh, how 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 would they go about doing that? Well, they, the first thing that they would do is take a look at the <clears throat> website USA Jobs, which essentially classifies all of the various uh, openings at USDA to see what might fit their skill set or their experience or okay. their interest. Um, and there's a process. You know, the other thing, uh, Joe, is that it's important for us as well to uh, to provide technical assistance. You know, our our processes can be pretty complicated. Um, you know, I'm not sure I could apply for a loan uh, without a little, a little bit of help, um, and I've got a law degree. Uh, so it's kind of hard to ask people um, by themselves without any assistance and help to actually fill mm-hmm. out all the paperwork that's required. So what we've done uh, recently is to provide grants uh, to a number of organizations across America uh, who have a, a trusted relationship with underserved populations, um, recognizing that we have to build a trust relationship that we don't currently have at USDA with these folks. Oh, I got we, we are working yeah. with community building organizations to give them resources to allow them to go out and create the technical assistance and understanding yeah. of our programs and then allowing them to guide folks through the system so that they have more success. Yeah, and that's where like an organization like the NACP might be able to help because they have a structure, they have chapters and rural as well as urban areas urban league i got you i, I yeah right. yeah yeah uh the final question and i don't always say that but it depends on the last answer um and 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 that is um the the um the 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 well what well, i'm not trying to be sensitive about this i i guess what i'm i'm trying to get to uh is the process will will the commission 
that you have and all these prominent individuals and organizations that are represented, will people be, uh, will they, will there be a form where they will come in and testify? Uh, You know, in other words, what will be the process that the commission will, uh, will go through? Well, the commission is going to be able to decide that process, but uh, we're going to make sure that the, uh, the meetings of the commission, the public meetings of the commission are open to the public and available for people to watch and, and to, uh, and to uh, potentially participate in the the commission will make that decision. We have two excellent co-chairs who will help lead this effort. Dr. Jill Bernal, who is our uh, current deputy secretary, first African-American woman to have that position in the history of the department and uh, Arturo Rodriguez, uh, labor leader, former president of the United Farm Workers Union, uh, those two individuals will make sure that okay. the process is transparent and open, uh, and that's yeah. critically important. Yeah, that's you know that's part of it because I know you'll probably there'll probably be folks who may want to say, well, I'd like to tell you my story. This is my experience. So that's something that the commission hopefully will work out uh, so that folks will, and I hope they do give give folks an opportunity to come before the commission and share their uh, experience. Look, thank you so much for taking the time, and, and uh, we'll check back and, and see how the commission uh, is doing. Now, when do they get started? Well, we hope to have the first uh, uh, public meeting in the end of February, end of this month. Okay. Um, All right. We, we, we are hopeful that they get some in- interim recommendations to us this year so we can begin implementation of those recommendations as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Secretary, thank you very much for coming on the Madison Show again. We'll stay in touch. You bet. Take care. You can listen to yours truly, Madison, the Black Eagle, live every Monday through Friday on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.